2: we regret to inform you the rejection podcast I knew I was good enough but they turned me down it took me about six months to realize it was because I was black Nina Simone when Eunice Kathleen Wayman was six months old her mother realized something almost unbelievable about her daughter. She could recognize musical notes on a paper. Her mother said, frankly, it was a little scary. At two and a half, she climbed up onto an organ bench and played God Be With You Till We Meet Again from start to finish. By three, Wayman was well-versed in blues and gospel. And by five, she became the official pianist for the Tryon, North Carolina United Methodist Church. Wayman later said she didn't simply become interested in music, it was a gift from God. Church was the center spoke of the Wayman family wheel. Her father was a jack of all trades, a barber, a dry cleaner, a handyman, and a preacher. Her mother was also a preacher, who cleaned the home of a white family in town for some extra cash. Together, they had eight children, Eunice Wayman being number six. And one afternoon in 1940, the prodigy completed a performance with her church group at a local theater, when two white women from the audience approached her. One was the woman whose house her mother cleaned, Mrs. Miller, The other was a local music teacher, Miss Mazzie. They'd decided before her performance was through that young Eunice Wayman was so talented she deserved private lessons. Mrs. Miller would do the paying. Miss Mazzie would do the teaching. Every Saturday morning, seven year old Wayman would cross the railroad tracks to Miss Mazzie's house, a very literal line dividing the black and white sides of town. Even at seven, it wasn't lost on Wayman this journey was dangerous. She knew instinctively to keep quiet and never divert from the path. To Wayman, Miss Mazzie was extraterrestrial. Not only was her lifestyle alien to the little black preacher's daughter, but Miss Mazzie's skin was snow-white. Her hair was snow-white. She was inordinately chipper. Miss Mazzie decided Wayman had the chops to become one of the great concert pianists this world had ever seen. So she introduced her young pupil to the greats that came before her. The Bees. Beethoven, Brahms, Bach. And, under the direction of Mrs. Miller, Wayman upped her classes from weekly to daily. Seven to eight hours a day, to be exact. Bach, in particular, captured Wayman's imagination. Suddenly, Miss Mazzie's dreams for her felt attainable, like she could do anything, be anything. But as much as she looked forward to those lessons— Wayman was also kind of lonely. Beyond the piano bench, she didn't fit into Miss Mazzie's ivory world. And after a while, when she'd crossed the tracks back home, it was like she didn't fit in there anymore either. By 1941, Wayman graduated eighth grade. 13 years before the segregation of children in public schools would be deemed unconstitutional, though it would be another near 25 years before most public schools actually desegregated. Wayman made the honor roll, a high achiever in all aspects of her life. And as Wayman's piano chops improved... Miss Massey decided she would make the perfect entertainment at that year's Donor Appreciation Night at the local library. 200 people flooded into the building that evening, including Wayman's parents, sitting proudly in the front row. But as Wayman took the stage, she noticed her parents being escorted to the back of the room, and a white couple proceeded to sit down in their seats. Wayman watched the humiliation from above. Her parents forced to give up their front row seats to their own daughter's performance. She was livid. So Wayman told the audience she refused to play until her parents were allowed to return to their chairs. The next sound she heard was laughter. (laughs) Holding the night's entertainment hostage was effective, The Waymans were escorted back to their original seats, and their daughter performed her recital, including improv at the end, where the audience shouted out random notes and she put together a tune on the fly. But the next day, Wayman felt as though she had been flayed, cut raw. But she says the skin grew back a little tougher, a little less innocent, and a little more black. Wayman would continue her lessons under Miss Mazzie for the next five years. Five years in a white environment, pursuing a white endeavor, out in the open for people to jeer and disapprove. She said, You feel the shame, humiliation, and anger at being just another victim of prejudice. And at the same time, there's this nagging worry that maybe you're just no good. There was no part of her physical being that was white passing. She said she displayed all the characteristics Miss Mazzie's neighborhood had been taught to despise. She remembers being told her nose was too big, her lips were too full, her skin was too dark. But when she played, when she played, she was the cutest little thing, a delight to everyone, a prodigy. And two white folks from Tryon, along with Miss Mazzie, even decided to get together to fund her tuition to a private high school. There, she could practice her craft and, hopefully, secure herself a spot at a performing arts college. So, at age 12, Wayman started at her first integrated school, Allen Private Boarding High School for Girls in Asheville, North Carolina. Thrust even deeper into an alabaster world, now there was no crossing the tracks back home to her sanctuary. She was surrounded. So the piano became her sanctuary. Wayman decided her life's purpose would be to become a pioneer in black classical piano. And in 1950, she graduated valedictorian and earned herself a scholarship to study one summer at Juilliard. Juilliard is one of the most prestigious performing arts conservatories in the world. It's in the heart of New York City, steps from Lincoln Center. Its acceptance rate is in the single digits. It was a thrill for Wayman to spend the summer soaking it all in. But truthfully, she had her heart set on a different conservatory, about two hours southwest of Juilliard in Philadelphia, PA, the Curtis Institute. The Curtis Institute is the most selective conservatory in the country. So the Wayman family relocated to Philly to help their daughter prepare for her entrance exam and remain close by as she studied with the Institute for the next three to five years. This audition was something Wayman had been preparing for since her six-month-old self successfully identified a treble clef. She'd practiced eight hours a day Now she was ready to study under the best. And on April 7th, 1951, she performed her audition, a selection of Bach and Rachmaninoff. But Eunice Wayman was rejected. 72 people auditioned for a spot in the school's exclusive and esteemed piano program. Three got in. Wayman knew she was good enough. She couldn't understand what went wrong. But six months after her rejection, she said she had a realization. She was rejected because she's black. It's documented that the Curtis Institute had accepted black students to the department prior to 1951, mostly men. But the first female pianist was enrolled in 1944 and would go on to graduate three years after Wayman's audition in 1954. The Curtis Institute maintains its rejection of Wayman had nothing to do with the color of her skin, but with the rigidity of its technical standards. Music critic Peter Dobrin writes that certainly racism exists as a spectrum, overt cloaked, unconscious, internalized, and no one can know what motivated the Curtis piano faculty to turn down what must have been an extremely compelling audition on April 7th, 1951. But he says the truth is more likely something far more common and less interesting. She wasn't good enough. On piano that day, at that point in her development, she simply did not make the cut. Wayman says she was told from individuals on the inside that her application was denied due to racial prejudice. Only four years earlier, Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier when he played his first major league baseball game. And only four years later, Rosa Parks would be arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on the bus. Wayman says as a black girl, she knew what she was dealing with. She'd lived it, growing up in the South for 17 years. She vowed to re-audition. She even took private lessons from a Curtis Institute professor. But by the time she went to reapply, she'd aged out of the school's program eligibility. They didn't accept students over 21 years old. Wayman was Devastated. Weyman's entire family had uprooted their lives and moved to Philadelphia to bolster her unfulfilled dream. They were struggling to make ends meet. So Wayman needed to find a job. Stat. She started giving private piano lessons to the children of wealthy white families in the Philly area. And one day, one of her students told her they had landed a piano gig in Atlantic City that earned them $90 a week. $90 in 1951 was the equivalent of nearly $1,100 in today's money. And it was double what she was earning teaching that student how to play. So she decided to make the trip to America's playground to see what she could swing. Wayman took a job playing piano at Atlantic City's Midtown Bar & Grill. She sat in the corner, tickled the ivories, and quote, "...watched old guys huddle over their drinks and fall asleep." Which was fine, except she knew her preacher parents would never approve. There was no scenario in which they envisioned their talented, classically trained pianist daughter playing night after night in a seedy bar. She said in her mother's eyes, it was akin to job hunting in the fiery depths of hell. Plus, she knew if the wealthy parents of her piano students learned of her godless gig, forget it. So she came up with a plan. To adopt a stage name. A new persona no one would ever trace back to Eunice Wayman. She took a nickname an old boyfriend had given her, and she smashed it together with the first name of her favorite French actress. And voila! She'd call herself Nina Simone. By the second night, Nina Simone appeared on the timesheet. Her boss, the owner of the Midtown Bar told her if she wanted to keep the gig, she'd have to do more than just play the piano. She'd need to sing. Otherwise, he'd find someone else. Simone was a classical pianist. She was not a singer, nor did she ever plan to be. But she needed that money. So Simone took the mic, and she dipped into the now classic songbooks of her time. George Gershwin, Cole Porter... And when she opened her mouth, out came what one critic later dubbed a whiskey-soaked vibrato. A smoky instrument with the rights to all the fury and the fire Eunice Wayman was forced to stifle. She had only a single octave range, but that octave was in perfect pitch. And her style was almost impossible to put a finger on. Somewhere between classical, jazz, blues, and, interestingly... From that night on, Nina Simone was not only born, but between the hours of midnight and 7am, she became a local sensation. Suddenly, Simone was in demand. She performed her set at the Midtown Bar, a slot at the local diner and supper club. And with that, she landed herself an agent who hit the ground running. He inked her a contract to earn $100 a week performing for guests at the Rittenhouse Hotel. Then that number jumped to 175 Soon, every booker up the eastern seaboard knew about Nina Simone. She was attracting club goers and diners alike. With that momentum and a demo in the form of a taped live performance... Simone sent her vocals to King Records, an Ohio-based label that had recently launched the career of one James Brown. King Records had a jazz imprint called Bethlehem Records. Her demo included songs like a cover of I Love You Porgy from the 1935 Gershwin opera Porgy and Bess. It included the folk song Black Is the Color of My True Love's Hair, and baubles, bangles, and beads. Bethlehem loved her unholy bar ballads. And in 1959, the 24-year-old signed her first record contract and soon after released her first album, called Little Girl Blue. And though Bethlehem didn't do all that much to promote the album, Little Girl Blue became an instant hit I Love You Porgy reached the top 20. But as the album rolled out, Simone saw no money roll in. Turns out, she had signed a bad record deal. Bethlehem retained the rights to her album outright, which meant the royalties went straight to the king's pocket. That year, she decided to walk away from Bethlehem and take her talents to the land of milk and honey New York City. In no time, Simone established herself as a fixture in the Greenwich Village club scene. She performed African soul and Hebrew music, interwoven with a Bach fugue, influenced by cocktail jazz with a smattering of children's songs and a high kick of cabaret. This subversion of genres, decades, and racial norms made for incredible musical fusion. But it also meant the music industry didn't really know what to do with her. Instead of acknowledging her broad appeal, critics disparaged her. She said they searched desperately for neat little slots to file her into. She would later add, she didn't look like they wanted her to. Light and bright-skinned like Diana Ross— and she didn't sound like they wanted her to. Traditionally feminine and glam like Diana Ross. One writer for The New York Age said, The reason the majority of white jazz critics are knocking Nina Simone's talents is because she projects an emotionalism their pet singers haven't learned how to copy just yet. In late 1959, Simone signed with Culpix Records, a division of Columbia Pictures. It was a bigger label than Bethlehem, with a bigger marketing machine behind it. That same year, Simone released her second album titled The Amazing Nina Simone. Amazingly, it became a national bestseller, and soon Culpix had a series of live performances set up for the new artist. The list included The Apollo Theater, The Village Gate, The Los Angeles Jazz Festival, The Blue Note, The Playboy Penthouse, and Copacabana. The California Eagle Road of Simone. As a rule, performers in the music world fall into one of two categories, either fine vocalists or great musicians. It's a rarity when one person can offer both talents with equal brilliance. Then her name appeared on the marquee at Manhattan's Town Hall, and her label saw an opportunity. On September 12, 1959, the label recorded her live performance at the Historic Theater to capture her raw sound, the spontaneity of her artistry. And with that, she released her third album, Nina Simone at Town Hall. The album was a hit, and soon Simone was asked to perform at the Newport Jazz Festival. The founder of the prestigious festival said Simone had a woman's voice with the depth of a baritone, and that depth carried the key to her soul. In December of 1959, Ebony Magazine called her arresting adding, when she sings, she either disturbs or delights her hearers, making Simone the most-discussed new jazz singer of 1959. Callpix released a live album of Simone's Newport Jazz Festival performance called Nina Simone at Newport. Then, together with the label, she released three more albums over two years, two studio, one live, and her latest single, Trouble in Mind, charted. Then, over the following decade, Simone pivoted. She says she stopped singing love songs and started singing protest songs, because protest songs were needed. In 1963, she wrote a song called Mississippi Goddamn in response to the death of activist Medgar Evers and the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where four young black girls were killed. Mississippi Goddamn sparked controversy. They used the Lord's name in vain, and the southern states where Simone was born and raised started boycotting her music, banning the song from popular radio stations nationwide. Records were arriving at her label's doorstep. Smashed. Years prior, Simone said she considered political music reductive. How could one pour the lives of four young black girls senselessly murdered into a a three-and-a-half-minute song? But Simone said this one just burst out of her. It only took an hour to write. Alabama's got me so upset, Tennessee's made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. Then later that same year, Simone decided she would perform her songs at the Mecca, Carnegie Hall. There was just one problem. None of the New York City promoters were willing to take on a performance by a controversial artist. Nina Simone wanted to become the first black female classical pianist to ever play Carnegie Hall. But with only rejection from promoters, she was forced to make a decision. To fund the performance herself. So, she did. And on April 12th, 1963... A cripplingly nervous Nina Simone stepped onto the very stage Tchaikovsky did at the Hall's opening night in 1891, and she performed, Mississippi God Damn to a mostly white audience, with her parents and Miss Mazzie in the crowd. Simone's performance was met with rave reviews from critics, and catapulted her music to airwaves across the country. She released more protest songs, including To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which became something of an anthem and an original composition called Old Jim Crow. In 1965, Simone performed at the Selma to Montgomery Civil Rights March, and on April 7, 1968, she performed Mississippi Goddamn three days after the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., She said she sang that day with so much anger inside of her that her voice broke, and it never returned to its original octave. Simone's first studio album was released in 1959. She would continue releasing albums until 1994 with more than 40 albums to her name across 40 years. In the year 2000, Simone received a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. And on April 19, 2003, the Curtis Institute, the very conservatory that had rejected her all those years ago, awarded Simone an honorary degree in recognition of her contribution to the art of music. Two days later, Nina Simone passed away. She was 70 years old. But Eunice Wayman, the prodigy who risked her safety to learn her craft, told her nose was too big, her lips too full, and her skin too dark, who was rejected from music school and couldn't shake the nagging feeling maybe she was just no good, who was told she didn't fit into the music industry's boxes, whose records were banned, and who was forced to fund her own performance at Carnegie Hall, would go down in the history books as Nina Simone, the High Priestess of Soul."
0: Sometimes when plans go wrong, it's because they would have turned out worse if they had gone right. That's a hard pill to swallow in the moment. You can be devastated when a career route evaporates before your eyes. But often, when life hip-checks you, it's sending you down a better path. When Nina Simone failed to get into the famous Curtis Institute for the most horrible of reasons her career aspirations took a hard left. But when that door slammed shut, a window opened. She found a job playing piano in a dive. To hide that ugly fact from her parents and from the parents of her piano students, Eunice Kathleen Wayman became Nina Simone, a crucial and magnificent step one in her career recalibration. Then the owner of the dive tells her she has to sing, something she had never considered before. And out of her mouth came a sound that was utterly original. She copied no one. A crucial and magnificent step, too, in her career recalibration. She may never have discovered her voice had her classical piano studies continued at the Curtis Institute. The rest is Nina Simone history. And what a history that is. Rolling Stone placed her at number 21 on the list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. That remarkable voice would sing about love and pain and injustice. An artist still revered 20 years after her death. It's remarkable how often moving sideways in a career can be so rewarding. What feels chaotic and disruptive and even demeaning, just might be the universe wrenching you off a path that you were holding onto so tightly so it could slingshot you to the place you were meant to be. No career is a straight line to success. For all of us, it's a bewildering series of setbacks, hurtful judgments, strange detours, and unsettling flight paths. But someday, you'll look back on those crossroads and know exactly why it had to be. Never, ever give up.
1: Kathleen Wayman. Grammy Awards 1. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Dutty 2018. Rolling Stone greatest singers of all time number 21. In the whole world you know there's a million boys and girls who are young, gifted and black and that's a fact. Nina Simone.
2: The Rejection Podcast is an Apostrophe Podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We don't regret to inform you. Our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Our theme music is by Ian LeFever and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music. Major sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like rejecting Dr. Mae Jemison from Season 2. In 1992, Dr. Mae Jemison became the first woman of colour to fly in outer space. But her journey to the stars wasn't without turbulence— Jemison's dream to break down barriers and succeed in a white male-dominated field was balked at every step of the way. Her grit and resilience are out of this world. You can follow our network on social at apostrophe pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See
3: you next time.
4: I'm being completely honest
0: now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own
4: uncomfortable.
0: Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.